I'm Gwyneth Paltrow, and you're listening to The Goop Podcast, thanks to our friends at Prime Video and Season 2 of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. In its first season, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel won eight Emmy Awards, including one for Outstanding Comedy Series. If you haven't binge-watched it yet, the Prime original series is set in the late 1950s in New York City. It follows Midge Maisel, who is played by Rachel Brosnahan. In short, Midge seems to have it all together. A husband, kids, a nice Upper West Side apartment. But when her life goes sideways, Midge finds herself doing something unexpected. Walking into a comedy club and trying her hand at stand-up. I think you'll love Rachel Brosnahan in this role. You can start streaming the second season of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel beginning on December 5th, only on Prime Video. And if you haven't watched season one, it's there for you to stream now. Hi again. Thanks for joining us. If this is your first time, here's what you can expect. Every Thursday and a bunch of Tuesdays coming up, Goop editors will be sitting down with thought leaders who are pushing boundaries in their fields. We'll talk to doctors, creatives, CEOs, and relationship experts. I'll be interviewing some people who've had a profound influence on our culture, and you'll also hear a lot from Elise Lunin, who is my right hand at Goop. Today, Elise is talking to Chip Heath. Chip is a professor at Stanford's Graduate School of Business and has co-written four books with his equally talented brother. Their latest, The Power of Moments, explores why we remember certain things and not others. And it suggests ways to make vacations, work experiences, and time with our kids more memorable and impactful. The routines are great because we know, we know what's predictable. But, but anything that breaks the script causes a little jolt of surprise, and surprise is what makes things memorable very often. Elise asked Chip about what makes a good memory, why they matter, and how we can create more of them. If you could turn an event that's just about enjoyable pleasures, sensory experience, elevation, if you could make that into an insight moment, you know, is there something we're learning about ourselves by going through this process? That's more likely to create a memory that, that lasts. Before we get to Chip, let's talk about one of our partners. If you've been following Goop for a bit, you'll know we're into essential oils. And if you get our newsletters, then you might have seen the new essential oil diffuser we launched with Vitruvi. The color, called French Grey, was picked out by GP, and it's sort of the defining shade of the company. Vitruvi is a dream company to work with. It's run by siblings Sarah and Sean Panton. They make beautiful stone diffusers that look at home in any office, bedroom, or living space. We like to keep them on our desks, nightstands, and right by the bath. This way, a little pick-me-up is never far away. You just drop a Vitruvi essential oil in to be diffused with water. My favorite Vitruvi scents are probably grapefruit, eucalyptus, and lavender, but whichever essential oils you choose, the diffuser ends up making the air in your space feel like you've just walked into the waiting room of a world-class spa. Between the steam and the sophisticated scent, I always find myself feeling a little more at ease when my Vitruvi diffuser is on in the background, and it's a nice change of pace from your typical candle. This time of year, we have the bergamot and frankincense scents in heavy rotation at Goop, and, spoiler alert, a lot of people on our holiday list will be getting a Vitruvi diffuser paired with a box of their essential oils. This also makes a good house gift to bring to friends hosting holiday parties this year. Just head over to Vitruvi.com and you can take 20% off your order with code GOOP20. That's GOOP20. 
At the end of today's conversation, I'll be doing a quick round of Ask Me Anything. If you have a question on your mind, just drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. Okay, over to Elise and Chip Heath. Professor Heath, so most of your work seems to focus on the cutting through of ideas or moments. What makes something resonant? What makes it stick? What makes it something that we remember? So I think there's a lot, obviously, to talk about within just that single concept, but what makes something memorable? Like, how, What makes it stick out in our mind as something worth revisiting? This is, this is what got me interested in going to graduate school, is I'd, I'd always been interested in how we think about the world and how we remember things. And it turned out there was this kind of psychology called cognitive psychology that was about those questions. And I think it's fascinating to think about, for example, college years are very important to most of us. But if you go back to students who graduated from college and you ask them what they remember about their college experience, the, the distribution is, is very skewed. 40% of the memories that they'll come up with are in the first six weeks of their freshman year mm. because that's the time when we're doing new things. We're off on our own at the first, for the first time. It's the first time we go to a party and we don't have anybody waiting up for us you know, at the, at the end of the party. And so, so 40% are, are freshman year. A lot of people remember graduation. Turns out junior year is completely forgettable for most people. There is kind of this black hole of memory there. And and I, I love results like that from the psychology literature and trying to understand those results has been something I spent a good part of my career understanding. So what moments do we remember of the lessons that were taught, you know, what makes ideas sticky and and so uh, political ideas or or lessons from our teachers, what what are the characteristics of a successful lesson? And so those are the questions that have fascinated me. This might be a really silly question, but like, can, do we have the ability to hold an infinite amount of memories, or is it important that we are sort of selective about what makes the cut? I mean, you're right. I don't remember junior year. I, yeah. I barely remember college, actually. <laughs> so, so what psychologists say is that, as far as we can tell, your capacity to remember things is infinite, but there are certain kinds of things that are more likely to get in the memory bank. And so things that are emotional are more likely to be there. Uh, things that are surprising or unexpected for the time that you learn them are more likely to be there. And so a lot of what, what psychologists have studied over the last 50, 60 years is what are the characteristics of things that get into that store. And if you can make every idea emotional and surprising and concrete and informative, there's no sense that we have a limit on what we could remember. It's just most of ideas in life are not like that. Right. So when you take that and you apply it to an experience, whether it's with your brand or whether it's within the context of the job that you might have at a company or as a parent, like what you're essentially saying is you can architect those moments, you can make them more memorable with some sort of predetermination, yeah. right? So, so take a birthday party. Um, so we focus in the book on four characteristics of moments, and we probably won't have time to do all of them, but two that come up in the t- typical birthday party are connection. So we remember things that connect us with other people. We care about other people. We, we have loyal, intense, loving relationships with people, and those things are memorable. And a birthday party is a good example of that because you know, our parents assemble our friends when we're kids to come over and do something with us. As adults, we don't celebrate every birthday maybe in the same way, but you know, for the big birthdays, we, we get together a group of friends and neighbors and acquaintances and, and have a party. And the fact that we're having a party is another component of the model because connection is one part of things that make 
moments, defining moments. But elevation of senses is another thing. So we love the fireworks show with the sound and the light. We love the, the view of the national park with the, uh, just the beauty of nature. We love our favorite foods and remember a great glass of wine, a great bottle of wine. And so those are all examples of what we call elevation. And birthday parties are fantastic for elevation and connection. I mean, think of a birthday cupcake. It's, it's the perfect cultural distillation of the senses. You've got sugar, fat, and flame all in one little <laughs> compact object. But what's, what's missing from birthday parties is, for example, one of the other things that we find is that people, people that have a sense of insight, those are memorable moments when we have realizations of, you know, this is not the job for me or that's the person I want to marry. Those moments of insight are moments that stick out in their mind. What if we turn birthday parties into something that would generate more insight? And so one of the things I've proposed to people and some people have started doing is, is summarizing for each birthday, have your child summarize for each one of their birthdays, what did they learn this year? What's mm. the major thing that they want to remember from this year? And I, I didn't do this, unfortunately, growing up, but I kind of it's curious for me to think about what my 8-year-old self would have said in response to that question or my 25-year-old self. And going forward, it'd be interesting when I'm 75 to look back at my 55-year-old self and, and think about those things. And so I think there are ways of building more more of these hooks to memory, more of these hooks to good experience into almost any event. Mm -hmm. I mean, the person who came up with Happy Birthday was brilliant because, you know, here's a cultural event that's already doing well. We've got cupcakes, we've got candles, but we need a song. And that song has become the most popular song that was ever written in the history of the, the universe, I think, because you can always, you can always do better. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting. And it's, that probably explains why I can't even remember how old I am. Honestly, like I have to calculate it almost every time someone yeah, asks yeah. me and it's like the day is just, I don't do anything to mark the passing of days, which now I have a resolution. I'm going to change it. That's right. Yes. Yeah, when sociologists ask people, what are the, what are the important day birthdays, you know, they'll say 15, 18, 21. And then there's, there are these big gaps because we do the tens, but, mm -hmm. um, but essentially there are fewer and fewer landmarks as we go through life. And one of the puzzles in sociology and psychology is that a lot of our memories in life, a lot of our formative, uh, formative parts of our identity happen in a very condensed period of time between basically junior high on through, through college. And, and then we kind of go into stall mode, I think, in our lives, and we don't have as many defining moments in, in life uh, after those periods. So, so I think if we're going to have, if we're going to have, intense moments as adults, we've got to work a little bit harder at it. Mm -hmm. It's so true. It's why in the past when friends have said, oh, we're going to elope or I don't want a wedding or I don't want the attention, I'm, I try to push them because there, aren't, there really aren't opportunities when people who you care about come together in one space. Yeah, I think that's a good intuition because, you know, it's easy, it's easy to say at the time, you know, it's so hard to get people together. And it might be for a wedding. It might be a reunion of your closest high school or college buddies. And it's always going to loom large in the short run, the, the hassle factor of that trip. But, you know, can I get the plane ticket? You know, where do we stay at the hotel? You know, we're going to we have food that we all like. And, and so those are, hard, those are hard things to resolve, but nothing in comparison to the value of that memory. Mm -hmm. Because if we... If we set out to produce memories, I think we would live our life a lot different. And we would spend, well, I think our culture is especially impoverished, for example, in terms of celebrations. Mm -hmm. There are cultures in the world where it's not, 
it's not inconceivable that you would sp- you would save for you know five years to put on a really good version of a party for for your community and weddings in most cultures i mean we spend a lot of money on weddings but in most cultures that's one of the most profound things that you do as a family is mm-hmm. put on a good party for for your friends and relatives when you're when your child is getting married and i think that's the right intuition you know if mm-hmm. we had more cultural holidays i think that would be good if we had more occasions in our personal lives when we celebrated the milestones i think that would be wonderful yeah i think even just that shift i just went to a, a really dear friend's 40th birthday this past weekend and everyone congregated and it wasn't a hassle like i think we always assume mm-hmm. how could i possibly ask people to do this but it was such a delight you know it's so nice to have an opportunity to even take the time to do something like that and i think in this culture particularly we're really good at making excuses if we do think it's too much of a right. hassle. And I think w- women in particular need to have sort of a paradigm shift and saying, no, it's okay. Like, it's okay to celebrate myself or yeah. ask ask people to show up for me. That's great. I agree with that. So I was thinking, I know in the context of the book, you, you talk about things like Disneyland. I just went to Disneyland as well, with, which I thought was kind of miserable. I know it's the happiest place on earth. And my son didn't seem to have a great time either. Although now... He did, yeah. in retrospect. What is that? <laughs> well, I think, so you went to Disneyland in California? Disneyland in California. Well, let, let me take Disney World because it's an even more extreme example. I mean, if you think about Disney World, it is structurally designed to be a miserable place. Yeah. And so when Walt Disney was looking around for 51 continuous square miles to build his dream park, there weren't many places in the States that that was available. But it turns out Orlando, there was a lot of land available. And that's because Orlando is fundamentally swamp ground. You right. know, when, when God created vacation destinations, he made the beaches of the Caribbean and the beauty of the Rocky Mountains. But Orlando was intended as a terrarium for, you know, snakes and mangrove trees. And just to prove the point, he encircled it with alligators, you know. And so you start reclaiming the swamp and you wind up with a park built on a place with 91 degree weather and 91 percent humidity. And put that together with the lines that you always get at Disney World on a moment to moment basis. You were probably happier if I pinged you about random moments in the park. You probably would be happier in any of those moments if you were sitting on your couch at home. Certainly. And yet, what Disney is great at is creating moments. And so I remember the first time I rode Space Mountain Roller Coaster, which is a cool roller coaster, but then they put it in a, a dome so it's completely dark, and they put up displays so you feel like you're zooming through the solar system and dodging asteroids and... That's a remarkable, I would have guessed it was a five-minute ride, but it turns out it's like two and a half minutes when I looked it up. And I remember that to this day. I was in college the first time I wrote it, but it was, it was a striking memory. And what I also know is that the average wait time at Space Mountain is 60 minutes. And so at 60 minutes, are kind of boring. You walk up three feet and then kind of stop for a while, and everybody looks around and tries to think of another topic of conversation, and the kids are acting out. And, you know, that's not fun, but... That part doesn't stick in memory because it's utterly generic. It's not awful enough to be a, a pit that we're going to remember emotionally. But when we get that two and a half minutes of pure pleasure, I can still remember that, you know, 25 years later. And so that is a peak. Yeah. So you mentioned pits. And so there are pits, peaks, and the peaks are sort of what define a good memory. Peaks are what define good memories. The pits are what define bad memories. And so part of the task of life is is smoothing out the pits mm-hmm. and then elevating the peaks. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, adding 
adding the sensory experiences to something that's already pretty good can make it a peak. So if we're planning a, a special occasion for a friend or a loved one, you know, the more, the more goodness we can cram into that event, the better. Because what you want to do is get above the threshold for what's a memorable event. You know, if you could, if you could turn an event that's just about, um, just about enjoyable pleasures, sensory experience, elevation, if you could make that into an insight moment, mm-hmm. you know, is there something we're learning about ourselves by going through this process? That's more likely to create a memory that, that lasts. And so a lot of, you know, I think about vacations. I got a recommendation at one point from a guy who was the CEO of a tech company, and he said, I travel a lot, and I don't always get to see my kids. But what I started doing a few years ago is with every child, I would have a date with them, and once every three years or so. And they get to choose the place anywhere in the United States that we can get to by plane or train or whatever. And they set the agenda. So you know, if mm-hmm. you wake up in the morning and you want to eat French fries for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, the answer is yes. You know? And he said, it, it has really transformed my relationship with my kids because we have a storehouse of moments that we've created together that cut across, cut across the lifespan. And, and so I took his advice. And like my older daughter wanted, she's an animal person, and so she wanted to go to a farm. And I'm thinking, I'm not sure I want to spend time on the farm, but I found a place in the uh, San Juan Islands off, uh, mm. off of Seattle. Um, beautiful, beautiful places. We got to ride a ferry boat to the island. We stayed at a farm. We got up in the morning and collected eggs from the ducks and the chickens and fed the alpacas and, you know, mucked out the horse stalls. And, and she was just in heaven. And my younger daughter, when it was her time, she wanted to do roller coasters. She's, you can tell who the thrill seeker is in the family. And so we did roller coasters. And she was the one that d- declared it a French fry day. And so we spent the day eating French fries from various places. And, <laughs> and, and I still get benefits from those, from those days. Um, my younger daughter was remarking to my, my spouse, like, I had a really, a, really, a really fun time with Dad last night. You know, it was almost like that time we went to the roller coaster park. <laughs> So that feeling, that feeling of infinite possibilities where parents aren't telling you to do your homework and do your math, it's, uh, it's responding to, to their lead. And is that also, I know one of the concepts in your last book, The Power of Moments, is about breaking the script, right? Yeah. So that, I would imagine, is the perfect example of doing precisely exactly. that. Exactly. So, so we get into routines, and the routines are great because we know, we know what's predictable. But, but anything that breaks the script causes a little jolt of surprise, and surprise is what makes things memorable very often. And so I was reading reviews for restaurants uh, one day when my family was in San Francisco and we were waking up in the morning for breakfast, and there was this one place that got rave reviews for their pancakes because they were, they were silver dollar-sized pancakes, and you get 50 silver dollar-sized pancakes. And so that was, that was what everybody talked about in the Yelp reviews. Two, two or three entries down was another place that was also highly rated but they said, the pancakes, they're amazing. They're the size of football helmets. <laughs> and and what, what's remarkable is people are taking the same batter, and normally they pour it out in a certain, you know, six-inch, I don't know what the size of a typical pancake is, but typical pancake size, and everybody's doing that. And so breaking the script could be they're going smaller, silver dollar-sized pancakes are going bigger, but nobody's raving about the standard six-inch size pancakes, uh, unless they've got some kind of special fruit ingredient or something on it. And so I think one of the one of the things that's challenging about 
about creating moments is moments are going to be more likely to be created when they're surprising, and and that's it's hard. It's hard to think of you know what can we do different yeah. this time. I love some of the customer service examples in the book too because I think they're so resonant. But the, also the idea of just you know I can't remember exactly what how you put it, but just easing or covering up the pits, yeah. right? And not trying to necessarily excel there, understanding you're never going to be able to provide exemplary customer service to everyone, but yeah. then focusing on making it good enough, right. if I'm interpreting correctly, and then going for the peaks. Yeah, you don't want, you don't want any disasters. So, so one of my favorite examples that you're alluding to in the book is uh, a hotel that's the number three rated TripAdvisor hotel, or actually number two rated at the time we were looking at it, TripAdvisor Hotel in all of Los Angeles. And number one is this very chic boutique hotel that costs you $800, $900 a night, and they have, they have you know, lin- uh, special thread count, high thread count sheets. They have heated bathroom floors, which is, of course, what you need in those horrible Los Angeles winters. Um, <laughs> it's, it's this kind of over-the-top, luxurious place, and that's number one. Number two is called the Magic Castle Hotel. It's actually, it's not not even a hotel designed as a hotel. It was a converted 1960s apartment building that they turned into a hotel. And so the physical plant is not remarkable. The walls, exterior walls, are kind of a uh, a weird shade of yellow. Maybe Big Bird from Sesame Street had had a similar shade uh, yellow. And so the physical plant is nothing special. But what everybody remarks on are the experiences that they create. And one of my favorite is by the pool... There's a red phone. It looks like it may be Cold War era surplus when the president needed to call the premier of the Soviet Union and negotiate a tense moment. And above that red phone is a sign that says Popsicle Hotline. And so, so you walk over to the phone and you pick it up, and a voice at the other end says, we'll be right there. And a few minutes later, somebody comes out of the front office wearing white gloves, carrying a silver tray, and they have Popsicles mounted on the tray. And they go around the pool and they pass out the Popsicles. And the, the kids are beaming at this point. The adults are smiling. There's no better recipe for happiness than a cold popsicle on a warm Los Angeles afternoon. And that's brilliant because it costs pennies. I mean, you know, the Hotel, the, the hotel Bel Air, the, 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 the ritzy hotel that I was talking about, number one, I mean, they spend more on chlorine tablets than the Magic Castle Hotel spends on popsicles. But the popsicles are memorable. And people write about them in the reviews. And that sense of fun and pleasure and surprising pleasure is an important part of what, what they're contributing to, to my vacation. I, and it seems like there is a sense of whimsy or a sense of fun or that's inherent in those standout moments. I remember in the book, too, where the father would wake up his daughter occasionally in the middle of the night for snacks yeah. and maybe a movie yeah. or chat yeah. and just have an hour at 2 a.m. I mean, it's it's debatable whether you have a happy child the next day, but that's definitely breaking the script. Yeah, well, and, and what's what's the child going to remember later? Um, so it, it, it is one of those trade-offs as parents. We, we often do things that, that, you know, we've got to manage our kids' moods and how, how are they going to do in, in school the next day and, you know, is the nap time for a very young child going to stay on, on track? But, but I think we overdo it because... Very often it is the script-breaking moments that, that are unexpected that are the things that we carry around for the rest of our lives. So fun. I know. Now, I'm, of course, I'm now I'm thinking about all of my the best memories from my childhood. And yeah. they were sort of those, including one on the San Juan Islands. I yeah. love the San Juan Islands. Yeah. First time I was ever responsible for my own transportation because we all rode bikes. 
and carried our own stuff. And I was a kid, but I had to get myself from one campground to the next. Yeah, and that's that's the nice thing about about childhood is there are so many things that you haven't done that almost anything can be a breaking the script moment. Um, I think one of the most poignant things that I remember from my older daughter's uh, life is seeing sand for the first time. Mm. So she was, we were in uh, boardwalk in Santa Cruz, California, and we walked off of the boardwalk and onto the beach and she was being carried. She was probably two years old. She was being carried by her grandmother, which is the best thing in the world when you're two is to be carried by your grandmother. But she was looking at this, at this stuff, this surface. And she, she stopped my mom and my mom put her down and she just sat there with her hands picking up the sand and watching it run through her fingers for 15 minutes probably mm-hmm. it took her to to get over that sensation but i think that's one of the joys of parenting is you get to see the world in surprising ways and you probably haven't thought in years about how amazing sand is but it is an amazing substance and and seeing your child do that kind of refreshes those memories yeah and it's nice that the simplest things can have so much impact too like when you're talking about onboarding, for example, or marking transitions. Mm. Um, and when we, you start a new company, it's such a significant day in your life. Yeah. And yet when you're at the company and you're bringing in a new employee, it's like, oh my God, one more person I need to train. Something we think we're thinking about a lot at Goop is better onboarding one. So it's not such a fire hose, but two, like it's like, it's, it's familial. worthy of celebration. Yeah. yeah. Like yeah. how do you how do you mark the day? How do you make it memorable? How do you make someone feel embraced yeah. and not like, you know, working through their really IT is, setup? It really is tragic. You know, we're not going to have an infinite number of jobs in our careers. We have a, a dozen maybe. And so why don't we celebrate those moments every time? I have some neighbors that are from uh, their families from southern India, and they have a ceremony that they go through when a child is about to learn to read. And they talk about the vistas that are going to open up to you as a reader, you know, and, and they have little little gifts that they give to the child who's about to become a reader. And and imagine having that ceremony in our culture. It would be very useful because that is a, that is a profound moment. When you're about to learn to read, the world is going to open up for you in a, in a very powerful way. And so, so I think we, we don't celebrate nearly enough things, even like the first day on the job, that are very clear demarcations much less picking out the first day of reading or the, um, well, I love, I love cultural traditions, the bar and bat mitzvah, you know, mm-hmm. the, the kintintera ceremonies where, where we say to a child that's in the teen years, this is a marking place. And, and after this, you were going to respond as a man or a woman in our culture, and we're not going to treat you as a kid anymore. I think that's a wonderful, wonderful mm-hmm. tradition. Uh, and, if we had the corporate equivalent, you know, for, for people that just become managers, we want to hand them a coach's whistle and say, you're going from being an individual contributor, scoring points on the field, to stepping back and helping other people do mm-hmm. that. And so mark this day, because this is an amazing day, you're going, from, you're going from player to coach. And that's a wonderful position to be in. But, you know, we, we, we anoint people as managers, and, and it's, it's, a, it's a happy moment at the start, but we don't celebrate it in a way that helps them start to make that mental shift between how I responded before and how I'm going to respond in the future. Yeah, no, that's so true. And I think through all of life's transitions and hard mo- hard moments or joyous moments, we do we really fall down on even saying this is happening. Yeah, much less Celebrating marking it, it with marking a medal. It, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that, and I 
it seems like that could potentially even get more. I know now we're very, as a culture, it seems like we're very wary of overpraising, of drawing too much attention to anything. Yeah. So I wonder if there won't even be more of a backlash against making people feel special. Yeah, I, th- I think it's I think it's interesting. So in California, everybody everybody gets trophies because they're participating. But but I think one of my favorite examples in the book is a is a manager that that came up with an award for for a person that was really good at, at listening to customers, and he gave gave the, the woman a pair of Bose headsets, and and I, I like that because it's a it's a concrete example. Every time you see those, every time you when you tell your family about the the award I got at at, at work, there's a meaning to that that is that is powerful. And so for for the person that's receiving it and the person people that are watching that being received, there's an important cultural point that you're making there that I think we 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 fail to make in lots of cases. Yeah, no, it's true, and I think it I think it does. I think it helps people understand where they add value where they're standing on the field, as yeah. you mentioned, in a way that's, like, that clarification is helpful. Yeah, yeah. Let's take a quick break to talk about our partner. After we put the kids to bed, and if I'm honest, pour some wine, my husband and I typically sit down to catch up on some shows. Soon, we'll have the marvelous Mrs. Maisel back in our queue. The second season of the Emmy Award-winning series premieres next week on Prime Video. And if you didn't watch season one, it's very bingeable. The series is written and directed by Amy Sherman-Palladino, and it stars Rachel Brosnahan, who won an Emmy last season for Outstanding Lead Actress in a Comedy Series. Brosnahan plays Midge Maisel, a 1950s housewife turned stand-up comedian, and Alex Borstein plays Susie. She is Midge's hilarious manager who decides to show Midge the ropes and help her navigate New York City's male-dominated comedy scene. And Borstein also won an Emmy last season for Outstanding Supporting Actress. The dynamic between the two women is a lot of what makes the show so compelling, and it will be fun to see what they get up to this season. To find out, stream the second season of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel beginning on December 5th, only on Prime Video. And if you missed the buzz of season one, you can stream it now. Goop's gift guides are pretty legendary. We break them up into different categories. So there's one for home cooks, there's a traveler's gift guide, one for guys, one for stocking stuffers. And of course, there is our ridiculous but awesome gift guide. It's ridiculous, but awesome. When it comes to holiday gift lists, I personally skew toward the practical. I have two young boys and we tend to just accumulate stuff we don't need, even though I try to avoid it. There are a lot of items in our gift guides that are more practical than, say, renting a whole village in Spain. And I also like seeing what Essentials Oprah puts on her O-list, speaking of legendary. I think it was last year that Oprah featured Quip's electronic toothbrush. If you've never seen a Quip toothbrush before, it's actually really sleek looking and the kind of product that the tech forward people on my holiday list would appreciate. The brush has a 30 second timer that reminds you when to switch sides and to brush for a full two minutes. There are no messy cords, chargers, or bulky holders and Quip's hold their charge for three months. So they're easy to pack, which is nice for holiday travel time. Quip sends new brush heads automatically straight to your door every three months for just five bucks. And if you're using Quip as a stocking stuffer for someone, you can even set them up with prepaid refills for a year. So you're really also giving them the gift of less trips to the drugstore. Quip starts at just $25. And if you go now to getquip.com goop, 
you can get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's getquip.com slash goop. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. So within the book too, you talk about the importance of a gratitude practice. Why do you think that that's important? Moments of pride are another category of moments that, that a lot of people were talking about. I mean, the wonderful thing about doing this book is we got to ask people about the important moments of their lives and their careers and their families. And, um, and a lot of the moments that people signal out were moments of pride. And so one of my favorite examples is this person said, I was an employee at this cookie, it was like a cookie store or a donut shop in a mall. And he said, one night the manager had to go home and I, I shut the whole place down by myself. I'd learned enough to you know, take the ingredients and put them away in the right place and take the cash and do what you do with the cash machine. And I said it was, a, it was an important moment because my manager came in and said, you know, most people couldn't have done that at this stage in their career, but congratulations, you, you closed down the store at night and made a little bit of a moment about it. And there was such a sense of pride that he felt for, for doing that and being recognized by it that he, he remembered it 30 years later. And here's a person that had a long work history, a very successful career. But that moment closing down the, the cookie store at the mall was one of the moments of pride in his life. And, and I think gratitude is, is particularly important because gratitude is the, the flip side of that. And being able to create those moments for other people in our lives, it turns out is good for both that person and for us. So if you give people the task of uh, writing a letter to somebody that has meant something to you in your life. It could be a former teacher. It could be a, a neighbor. It could be a, a mentor of some kind. So you, you write the letter, and then you deliver the letter to the other person in person. Mm. And that one, it could take 30 minutes is all, but that one 30-minute period turns out to have implications that, that six weeks later, you're measurably happier if you did that gratitude letter six weeks ago than if you didn't. So that's a pretty good bang for your buck if you're doing writing one letter and six weeks of happiness ensue after that. What is the happiness? I mean, I love that. That's an incredible idea. What is the, like, just the practice of gratitude and expressing that makes you feel more deeply rooted in your life or more aware of the people who've influenced your life? What is it, do you think, that creates the rock in the pool? I don't think psychologists know all of the features, but I think the ones you mentioned are plausible. I, I mean, I think it, it, changes, it changes the way that we think about our relationships with others. It changes the way that we think about how proactive we, we can be in life and the effect that we can have on other people because we're, we're thanking somebody for making a difference in our life and that may open us up to opportunities to do that for other people. That's such a powerful idea to particularly in contrast to things that feel a little bit more generic and canned, like an employee of the month or just putting a label on it. And then it seems like when you do programs like that, you have to sort of acknowledge everyone. Like they're cheap in, right? Yeah. Alex hasn't, hasn't been employee of the month yet. You know, let's, let's thank him for, you know, yeah. Yeah. I think the, the the headsets, well, the headsets are expensive. I mean, here's an example from my graduate years. Um, a graduate student brought in and congratulated one of the other people in the seminar who had been really productive. This is an interdisciplinary seminar. There are psychologists and sociologists and economists there. And this one person was really good at thinking through other people's disciplines. 
Mm. And she was trained as a sociologist, but she was really good at, at explaining to the economists why sociologists think like they did and to translate back to the sociologists why the economists were thinking like they did. And a graduate student brought in a, 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 a packet of saran wrap, right, and just said, I want to give you the saran wrap award for making things transparent and clear that haven't been before. Mm. And and I, that that cost two fifty. But it was a great moment for the seminar because you were celebrating this person who contributed a lot. And she kept that saran wrap at her cubicle for, for at least the two years that I saw her in her PhD program. And it's because somebody took time to recognize the value in somebody's contribution. Yeah. And obviously he could see her, too. I mm-hmm. think there's some, you know, the, the act of writing a letter to someone or just that reflection and reflecting back how you see someone, I think, can be it's so powerful to be on the receiving end of that and to think some things might be true about yourself. But then when they're reflected by someone else, you're like, oh, yeah, it's that confirmation. The confirmation is wonderful. It's, yeah. yeah, it's very, very moving, particularly if you in these if you're sort of one of those people who cast around wondering like, where do I add value or how do, what am I doing? What's my purpose? I think when people can sort of say, this is part of it, that's deeply, deeply powerful. That's great. When you think about those big moments, happy weddings, sad funerals, joyous graduations, I know you sort of think of weddings as having all of the elements, right? Because there's music, there's sensor. But even so, I think some weddings can feel rote. Yeah. I think in part because people people try and peek it out too much, or they don't focus on one or two peaks. I, I like the idea, and when I even think about my own wedding, the things that I were, I knew I couldn't control very many things. And so I focused on, now in retrospect, evening out peaks, trying to make sure that everyone was not too hot, not too cold, right. had access to good food, plenty of food, and access to plenty of booze and clean bathrooms. Yeah. So I was, I knew I wasn't going to serve Getting most. Rid of the pits. Yeah, yeah, I got tried to get rid of as many pits as possible because I knew I wasn't going to win awards for food served in a field in Montana. Yeah. Well, the food was pretty good, but then it was like, what are the moments? What are the peaks? Yeah. And one thing we did, we broke, we broke the script. And instead of having a traditional ceremony, this was on the advice of a good friend, Taylor, who's a TV writer and good at this sort of thing. He was like, you know, all the memorable moments at a wedding happen in the toast. Often they're at the rehearsal dinner or they're at the dinner, but people are sort of full and they're not really paying attention. So like load all the toasts into the ceremony and make the ceremony wow. the personal thing. because. That's great. That's supposed to be the personal thing, yeah. And we did, and I think it really worked. I, I think this. I think that's profound because you're 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 breaking the script. But there's also such insight that comes from having friends and family talk in a in a informed, humorous. Probably many of them were humorous, but mm-hmm. many heartfelt. I think that that's a better wedding. You know, everybody ought to be doing that kind of thing. And and I don't think it would get old because. Every couple, there are going to be different stories that are told and different emphasis that are had. And I think that's so part of the grandeur and emotion that we get from ceremonies comes from the, the fact that we've done this thing that echoes with what our parents did and their generations before that have done it. And that's an important set of emotions, but it sacrifices on the inside and the, the, the elevation. Mm-hmm. And when you think about something like a funeral, which is 
so it's predetermined to be sad, except in some instances. And then in a way, like often funerals aren't memorable either. And maybe it's hard to cut through grief. Yeah. But I wonder. Well, I think I was talking to a group at one point that talked about music as a way of, of removing some of the grief and helping people think think about what the person had contributed in their life. But imagine going into the soundtrack of somebody's life and taking their favorite songs and playing those at the funeral. I mean, th- there are cultural traditions that that would be shocking. But I think a lot of us are from cultural traditions that don't have don't have any good good ways of providing the insights or the connections mm-hmm. uh, with the person that died. And in that, you know, walking into somebody's soundtrack from my life, I think it would be a wonderful, immersive experience of elevation. You get insights about them. And I think it would bring back a, a wider range of emotions that you have about that person. Yeah, and I think it would cut through. Because I think in terms of connection, unless you're connected to someone through the church, let's say that a service is at the church, it's not inherently like how you remember them, right? So it's, it puts a lot of pressure on eulogies and whatnot to create those moments of right. connection. So that that makes a lot of sense to me. It is giving permission to to people to say, "I'm going to do this differently," yeah, and breaking it down to its elements and then building it back up. Yeah, and I think that's that's what we hope the framework in the book will do for people is is give them give them leverage points for thinking about how do I take this good thing that's already good and make it even better. And so adding sensory experiences with elevation or adding, adding those little insights into somebody that you did for your wedding, mm-hmm. uh, I think those are, those are brilliant directions to go. And then letting yourself off the hook for a lot of other things, like understanding you're not going to win at everything. Right. So picking, like, what are a few things that we can do that will make this memorable? And the rest, like, we had a terrible band. Um, <laughs> you know, like, there were, <laughs> we definitely didn't hit it out of the park on every level, but I think on the whole it was a really memorable wedding because of the place right? and because we broke the script a little bit. Good for you. Thanks for listening in on our chat with Chip Heath. You can learn more about his work at heathbrothers.com and at goop.com slash the podcast. Okay, on to that Ask Me Anything. Grace would like to know who is your biggest role model? You know, this is hard for me because I feel like I have very different role models for very different things. I don't feel like I have one particular role model. I mean, I think my daughter is kind of my role model for being completely inhabiting your body and absolute comfort with who you are and self-expression. I, I marvel at how comfortable she is with herself at 14. I wish I had been like that. Of course, Oprah, my queen. She's my work role model, one of one of the top three for sure. Chief executives, it would be hard for me to name one, but um, I have a few specific ones that I, I really look up to and and study what they do, try to try to figure out how they make decisions. If you have a question you'd like me to answer here, send it over to Goop on Instagram or Facebook. 
Thanks again for tuning into the Goop Podcast. We'll be back next week with two conversations, a special episode on Tuesday and our regular Thursday conversation. To keep up, just hit subscribe. And if you like what you're hearing, please rate, review, and share with a friend. And if you're looking for more info, head to goop.com slash the podcast. See you soon.